0: Our text for this morning is found in Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. The priest and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John and, because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus.
1: Well, good morning, everyone. How are you? Why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles, if you have them, to uh, that text that Paige just read for us uh, in the New Testament, Acts chapter 4. If you need a Bible to use, you should be able to find one in one of the uh, chair racks down around you. Acts chapter 4, if you're a guest today, just so you know what we're doing, we're uh, we're in a series right now called Going Viral, and it's a study of this first century document that records how... Uh, The early Christian church and the good news of God's love and grace went, as we would say today, went viral, spreading very quickly from the streets of Jerusalem to the farthest reaches of the known world. And, um, you know, understanding how all of that unfolded uh, is, in my opinion, quite, quite important. The great Roman philosopher and statesman Marcus Cicero once said, Not to know what happened before you were born is to be always a boy to be forever a child. In his book, Renaissance, The Power of the Gospel, However Dark the Times, Christian author and thinker Oz Guinness references uh, Cicero's quote and asserts that we have many forever children in the church today, Christians with no appreciation of the past who are condemned to live Peter Pan lives in never-never land of the present with little knowledge of the past to, to inspire heroism, to season their wisdom, protect their steps from the pitfalls into which previous generations have fallen. In short, uh, Guinness and Cicero believe, and I would agree, that understanding uh, history is critical to both our present and our future. And what history tells us about the Christian church is that it was born into a pluralistic society, one with you know a lot of different cultures, different religions, gods and goddesses, and different systems of belief that made up the vast Roman Empire. And within that context came followers of Jesus who made some, well, they made some universal and exclusive truth claims which were not necessarily popular with everyone and eventually got them into trouble. As Christians today, we too live in a pluralistic society, one in which we at times find ourselves at odds with those who tell us, hey, get in line with the program. Stop making universal truth claims about God, about Jesus, about sin, about grace, about eternal life and those things. And so here's my point. Our 21st century experience is not historically unique. The church has been in this situation before. It was born into a very similar pluralistic society. So the question is, how did the church not merely survive but actually thrive In the midst of it. And that's what I want to explore with us uh, a bit this morning in the time that we have. Before we do though, let's pray, shall we? Our Father, together we say good morning to you. And we use the word good because every day that we have is a gift from you. Every moment, every breath we take is a measure of your grace And thank you for the day that reminds us of that, the beauty of it. Um, And today, no matter what comes our way, good or bad, uh, easy or difficult, expected or unexpected, whatever happens, Lord, may we find ourselves saying um, that you are good and we trust you with our lives. I pray this morning that you would be with us in a special way and teach us by the work of your Spirit. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me just quickly review for you the historical setting of chapter 4 of Acts. If you recall back in chapter 3, we're told that one day when the apostles John and Peter were entering the temple in Jerusalem, that they encountered a poor 40-some-year-old man uh, who was lame from birth, uh, sitting there next to one of the gates, uh, begging for help. And the man uh, asked John and Peter for money and Peter said, we, we don't have any but I'll give you something better and he said, in the name of Jesus, get up and walk and the man was immediately healed and as you would imagine uh, that event caught the attention of the temple crowd who who was very familiar with this guy he had been begging there probably most every day of his life and so with this man, this man suddenly healed, standing there next to Peter, Peter addresses the crowd and he tells them all about Jesus the Messiah, who he calls the righteous one, the author of life, deity in, in the flesh, put to death for the sins of humanity, raised to life, graciously offering forgiveness and resurrection to eternal life to all who believe. And it's through this Jesus, Peter said, that God would bless all the nations of the world just as he promised Abraham. Here in chapter four, Peter summarizes all that in one sentence. He says, salvation is found in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Now, obviously, we know from the text that uh, this message of Jesus was, um, was somewhat offensive to the temple leaders, the priests and the Sadducees. Now, in case you don't know, the Sadducees were wealthy religious aristoc- aristocrats who had held uh, important um, and powerful positions within the community and within the temple itself. And uh, these these individuals individuals worked very hard to keep peace with Rome. Uh, they were really more concerned about politics than religion. In fact, the Sadducees denied the existence of a spiritual world, they didn't believe in angels or demons or anything like that, they, they actually denied an afterlife. They said, when you're dead, you're dead. And that's why they were so sad, you see. Now, look, I get it. That is the goofiest thing you are ever going to hear, but I learned that in grad school, so I paid a lot of money for that information. And i tell you what, you will never forget what the Sadducees believed or didn't believe in, however you want to remember, right? They they say when you're dead, you're dead. They did not believe in an afterlife. And so the whole idea of resurrection, the whole idea of eternal life was appalling to them. And notice the text says that they were greatly disturbed because the, the apostles were teaching the people these things. They were proclaiming in Jesus that there there is resurrection of the dead. And uh, so these guys were really They were disturbed, they were enraged and they seized Peter and John and and they tossed them into jail. Now what's interesting to note here is that these religious leaders, uh, like most others in Israel at the time, were expecting and looking for a divine Messiah to show up on the historical scene. But what they envisioned was more of a political leader, a revolutionary type who would come and, and lead the nation in overthrowing Roman oppression. You know, he would be, in their minds, he would be sort of a limited Messiah. He would be for the Jewish people only, not a universal Messiah that Peter and John claimed Jesus to be. And yet these Jewish leaders in Jerusalem wouldn't be the only ones greatly disturbed by the apostles' claims. Eventually they find themselves in conflict with Gentiles as well. Uh, in Acts 19, we're gonna see a riot uh, erupt in the city of Ephesus when the apostle Paul arrives and start teaching, starts teaching about Jesus, saying Jesus is Lord. Uh, and, and in that particular case, we're told that there arose in the city, same two words, a great disturbance. People were greatly disturbed. Um, the people, the, 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 the Roman authorities, they're greatly disturbed at all this. Why is that? I suppose there's there several reasons, but one of them, um, I think, is because the Roman Empire was officially pluralistic. In other words, everyone had the right to believe in his or her own god or goddesses. Uh, the only caveat was that you had to worship Caesar as well. You had to say, Kaiser Curios, or Caesar is Lord. That was the law. You know, which, which kind of made the whole plurality thing uh, uh, disingenuous. You know what I mean? Rome said, you, look, you can have your own god or goddesses, whatever. You can have whatever you want, do whatever you want, as long as you worship Caesar as well, which by definition meant you couldn't claim that your god was superior. And early Christians you know, couldn't go along with that. Instead of saying Kaiser Curios, they declared Christos Curios, or Christ is Lord. And that truth claim Uh, brought them in direct conflict uh, with their culture. And so um, as I've been thinking about this over the last few weeks, I realized that the reaction of the religious elites in Jerusalem, along with the Gentiles in in Ephesus, uh, was not that unlike what we see from some people today who are um, particularly perturbed, I guess you could say, uh, about some of the teaching of Christianity, specifically the idea that Jesus is Lord. It seems that those who live in pluralistic cultures, whether it's the first century or the 21st century, find something greatly disturbing about that, something problematic about such universal truth claims. I mean, if you think about it, in today's context, for Christians to say we believe Jesus is Lord, the one true way to God, is increasingly viewed by, by, by some in our culture uh, as insensitive, as narrow-minded, rude, in some cases, dangerous, um, and such claims are then condemned and criticized by those who argue, "Hey, you Christians, um, you know maybe in the primitive past, it was okay to say those kind of things. Maybe in the ancient world that was okay, but today, in our pluralistic society, you know your neighbors are Your neighbors are 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 atheists and agnostics and Muslims and Hindus and you know you got to get with the cultural program here. You cannot make exclusive truth claims like that. If people are going to like Jesus, if they're not going to get offended by you, you've got to say that not only are all religions equally uh, protected under the law, but all are equally valid. And again, this is nothing new to the church which God had started in a very, very similar situation. Yet, yet history tells us, despite the disapproval of both Jewish and Gentile authorities, the truth claims of Jesus were embraced by thousands of men and women. You know, at this point in the book of, of, uh, of Acts, in chapter four, verse four, we, we learned that the church in Jerusalem had swelled to well over 8,000 believers. And still today, Christianity remains the fastest growing faith worldwide. Why is that? Well, could some of it be that, that on, on some level, people, um, people recognize the reality of universal truth claims? You say, well, what reality is that? The reality that everybody makes them, right? Isn't that, isn't that the case? I mean, in Jerusalem, the Sadducees made the statement, there's no life after death. I mean, that's a, that's a universal truth claim. Uh, in Ephesus, the Romans said, Caesar is Lord. That's a universal truth claim. See, whether it's the ancient Near East or contemporary Western, the contemporary Western world, everybody says these kinds of things. Everybody makes these kinds of statements, these kinds of claims. You see what I'm saying? Um, think about it this way. If today, today in America, to claim that, that Jesus is Lord, Savior of the world, or as the Apostle Peter put it, salvation is found in no one else, uh, that elicits a reaction from some people. Who again will say, "Look, you can't, you can't say that, man. You can't, you can't, you can, you can believe in Jesus all you want. That's fine. That's great. No problems. But you can't, you can't say that he is the best or he's the only way to God. Don't, don't claim he's superior to other great leaders like Plato and Moses and Muhammad and Buddha. It's just arrogant to do so." And my response to that is, "Well, wait a second. So, let me get this straight. We can believe in Jesus, who said." Before Abraham was born, I already existed. And who said, as the Christ, it is appointed for me to die and then be raised to life on the third day. And who said, all who believe in me will never walk in darkness, but have the light of life, they'll they'll have eternal life. Or Or the one who said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Is this the Jesus we're talking about? It must be, because it's really the only one we have in history. And he said all of those things. And so for us to suggest that salvation is found in no one else may be a universal truth claim that sounds arrogant to some. It's only arrogant if it's not true. The thing is, no other religious founder or teacher ever claims such a thing. And so there's really no way to just believe in Jesus as if he is equal to all the others, at least no intellectually honest way. I've been reading a bit about this gentleman his name is Toyohiko Kagawa. And uh, <clears throat> he was one of Japan's greatest leaders. Uh, he became a Christian, um, I think it was in his teen years. He traveled to the U.S. Uh, he, uh, he studied and graduated from Princeton University, returned to Japan as a, socia- as a social activist. He was imprisoned in World War II uh, for his Christian values. He was very outspoken. He uh, ended up writing 150 books, he was nominated for the Nobel Prize in Literature twice, the Nobel Peace Prize twice. He was awarded the highest honor in Japan given to any citizen. It's, he was inducted in what's called the Order of the Sacred Treasure. I mean, the guy was brilliant, a loved and respected leader who also happened to be a Christian. And in his book, Christ in Japan, he writes about becoming a follower of Jesus. He says something very interesting. He says, I'm grateful for Shinto, Buddhism, Confucianism, I owe much to these faiths, yet they failed to minister to my heart's deepest needs. I wandered through a dark and dismal world where tragedies were thick. Buddhism teaches great compassion, but since the beginning of time, who has declared this is my blood poured out for many for the remission of sins? Islam proclaims the mercy of God, each chapter of the Quran, introduced by the words, in the name of Allah, the compassionate, the merciful but they do not tell of a costly and historic display of God's mercy as portrayed by the cross and spoken of in the scriptures. In Islam, Allah is merciful to the meritorious, those who pray, give alms, and fast. In Christianity, God is merciful to sinners, not because of their good works, but because of his grace and Christ's sacrifice. Here's my, here's my Reiki Translation, Kagawa is saying, look, I, I learned a lot um, from other religions, which it's possible. But he says, look, Buddha and Confucius and Muhammad were very different from Jesus, very, very different. They said, they said, you know, here's my teaching, work hard, follow it, and you may find God. Jesus said, I am God, come to find you. I mean, maybe he was right, maybe he was wrong, but Jesus wasn't the same as everybody else. And I think it's fair to say that either he was deluded, in which case he would be inferior to all the others, who would never say such things, or he was truly God come to find us, in which case he'd be superior to all the others. And salvation is indeed found in no one else, just as he said. See the claim is only the claim is only arrogant if it's not true. Here's another thing people in in a pluralistic culture sometimes say about Christianity and the claims of Jesus. They say that they're, they're they're way too exclusive. It's all way too exclusive. And the, the argument goes like this. It's a big world out there. There are a whole lot of people believing all kinds of things and some people uh, have faith in God. Some people, some people don't, agnostics, atheists. And so, so if you Christians insist, keep insisting that your faith is exclusively true, we're never gonna have a peaceful, pluralistic society because the only way for that to happen is for everyone to be inclusive and say all religions are equally valid. And this is a common assertion made by many of the academics and cultural elites of our time. It's the notion that religion can be subjectively, privately helpful. Whatever it is, it can be helpful for an individual, privately. But objectively and publicly, there just can't be one right way to think and talk about God and spirituality. And this perspective came from uh, the European Enlightenment of the 18th century, came from guys like David Hume and... um, Immanuel Kant and philosophers like that, and it's based on what, what's known as the fact-value dis- distinction, which says that, look, science gives us facts that we can talk about in, in public, whereas uh, values and religious morals are private because no one can really decide what's right. You know, In other words, there's a distinction between what is fact Uh, identified by science, and what people believe there ought to be value. And so while religion can be subjective and privately helpful, objectively, publicly, out there, there can't be just one way to think and talk about God and morality. It's just too big of an issue for anyone to describe in a specific set of of propositional beliefs. And therefore, the argument goes, because no one can say that this is the right way to believe, you have to say, we all have to say, all religions are equally valid and we must be inclusive. But that just seems so hypocritical and really makes no sense logically. If you think about it, I mean, how can all religions be equally valid? given all the various and opposing claims and, 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 and points of view. How can that be true? The only way it could be true is if there is no God and everybody's wrong, or God is such an impersonal, out there, disengaged force that it doesn't believe what you believe, or doesn't care what you believe, I mean. doesn't really give a rip what people think or believe. See what I'm saying? I mean, it's... Um, Look, it's like when people approach Christians today, maybe someone would come to me and say, look, Ray, with all due respect, you know, it's wrong for you to believe that yours is the one true faith. You know, to say you know, Jesus is God, that he's the only way, you know, don't. that's just arrogant, man. Don't, that's, it's arrogant and it's exclusive. All religions are equally valid. All are ways to God. But if you listen very carefully to what that person is saying, what they're actually saying is that their view of God, who maybe either doesn't exist or doesn't give a rip what they believe, their view of God is correct and mine is not. So they want me to adopt their view and their truth claims and abandon my own, you see? In other words, they're being every bit as arrogant and exclusive with their claims as they accuse me of being. And they're doing the very same thing they're telling me not to do. They're trying to convert me to their One way to believe system. The only difference is they won't admit it. And here's here's what I find somewhat um, frustrating, and and that is that most people go through life, uh, and, and I would even say many of us as Christians go through life not taking time to think about this and to engage our brains long enough to realize that everybody in our culture is making universal, exclusive truth claims. It's not just Christians. Everybody's doing it. Atheists say, there is no God. That's a universal, exclusive truth claim. Agnostics say, there's no way you can know if God exists. That's a universal, exclusive truth claim. To argue there are no no absolute truths is absolutely a universal truth claim. To say no one should make an absolute claim is an absolute claim. You, You see what I mean? Everybody does it. Religious and irreligious alike. It's just that not everybody will admit doing it. It's kind of fascinating when you begin to think <laughs> how it works. But <clears throat> the question for us, I guess, is then where does that leave us as Christians living in a pluralistic society? You know, with so many people holding to so many different beliefs and values, how do we respond to that? How do we exist together, how do we respect one another? How do we live with civility and cultivate a society of peace? I mean that's a pretty serious and complex question. But I think I think that Peter and John offer us at least in part some insight to the answer in terms of how we, at least as Christians, should live and what we should do. Because after being left in jail overnight, the text tells us that the next morning the apostles were brought before this group of religious leaders who were still greatly disturbed. And they were questioned about what they were doing, what they were teaching in the temple. You know, they were healing this crippled man. They were telling people, talking about Jesus. And as they're being questioned, Peter Peter says, you know, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked to uh, ask how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Here's my Ray K. summary. In many respects, Peter and John demonstrate, you know, how to live in a pluralistic society. I mean, simply put, they they not only preached the gospel, they lived it yeah? I mean, they embodied it. They spoke the truth about Jesus, and then just like Jesus, showed compassion and kindness to a poor, marginalized human being who is in desperate need of help. And, you know, as we move through the rest of, on through the rest of this book and as we continue to look at history, what we're going to see is that that kind of love and that kind of generosity and that kind, that kind of kindness and, and indiscriminate servanthood of early Christians, especially toward the lost, the sick, the abused, the forgotten of all races, creeds, and colors, became the greatest apologetic for the truth of the gospel. I mean, it just rocked the first century world to the core. People had never seen anything like this before. And here, it's like Peter says to his accusers, he says, look, if you're gonna punish us for being compassionate, if you're gonna punish us for actually helping someone in need, then just make sure you know in whose name we did it, Jesus. It's in his name we did it. And you know, the thing is, it's really hard, it's really hard to argue with kindness and with compassion. You know what I mean? It's hard to criticize So the problem these greatly disturbed religious leaders faced was that the crowd of people who saw and heard all of this in the temple, who weren't greatly disturbed at all, they were greatly thrilled and praising God for what happened with 5,000 of them becoming followers of Jesus. Truth and compassion are hard to argue with. Now let me... Let me bring this back to our contemporary context because I believe <clears throat> that we as a church stand at a cultural moment in history when people are, people are beginning to say more and more that our world is messed up. It's broken. The world needs help. It's, it's like the light bulb has gone on. It's one like one of those new light bulbs. You know, it takes a while to get brighter and brighter. But it's like the switch has been pushed. And some people are thinking and some people are seeing how relativism ultimately leads to, uh, to chaos. And so people are saying, man, we need, <clears throat> we need some truth to go by. We need some universal values, some moral st- uh, absolutes that help stave off and fight poverty and crime and racism and violence and injustice, but... We need non-oppressive ones, absolute values that don't turn people into tyrants and despots. Because in the past, let's face it, people have used those kind of things to gain power over and oppress others. What People are saying what we need is something that turns people into not just agents of justice but men and women of compassion and humility and generosity, true servants of humanity who don't oppress but who love others. And whether they realize it or not, what they're saying is that we need the gospel, the good news of Jesus and the grace of God. In some ways, that's what Peter's trying to tell these religious aristocrats in the temple when he says, you know, Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. In other words, he was saying, Jesus came to rescue us from sin and from ourselves and solve the problems of our world, not through political revolution, but through personal rejection and sacrifice, which is, is, which is what you guys did to him. You rejected the Messiah you're looking for. You crucified him. But now God has raised him up and made him the cornerstone of the kingdom that's coming. With Jesus, it was through truth and love and humility and compassion and servanthood and homelessness and sacrifice. It was by giving up his power and being rejected and dying on a cross taking the punishment for our sins and failures that God's forgiveness and love can now freely flow into our lives, into our culture, and into our world. And our rescue as broken human beings comes only to those of us who are willing to admit that we're messed up. We're sinfully broken and we're in need of God's grace and help. I think that fact comes out in the text as well when these leaders, were told these leaders, they saw the courage of Peter and John and, and realized that these were unschooled, ordinary men. And they were astonished by that. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. In other words, it was because of him, Jesus, that these ordinary unschooled nobodies were courageously transforming the culture. And see, that's really what's so astonishing about the gospel of grace. You know, think about it. As I read this, I was thinking outside of the gospel of grace, out in everyday life, as broken human beings, our self-worth and our value, our identity, is based on relative status. Isn't that true? Uh, uh, We're always comparing ourselves to others. You know, this person, that person. But in reality, that's a very futile endeavor. Why? Well, for example, you may be the smartest student in your high school. You feel really great about yourself until you get to that Ivy League type university where you're just average, maybe below average. And suddenly you feel like a loser. You're kind of lost because your identity is based on relative status. You're not, you're not proud of being smart, just smarter than mostly everybody else around you. And then you find out that's not actually the case because the problem is there's always someone smarter. Or it's like being the best percussionist in the state of Arkansas and you get off the bus in Chicago and there are three kids on the street beating buckets who are better than you and your confidence you know, is just flushed down the drain. Or you, know, you, you win a beauty pageant, and then the, unfortunately this week you find out that Sandra Bullock is the most beautiful woman in the world. <laughs> you know, apparently that is a universal exclusive truth claim that somebody has made about her. I don't know who makes that decision, but um, apparently that's the case. See, here's the point. This is not an adolescent issue. This is an adult issue. It happens with all of us. It happens at home. It happens at school. It happens in the office. It happens in the church. We compare ourselves with everybody else in life. There's always going to be people who we, you, you, we feel superior to and those we feel inferior to. The religious elites here in Jerusalem, they viewed themselves as very superior to John and Peter, which is why they were astonished when these two inferior, uneducated, ordinary fishermen weren't intimidated by them. In fact, they were courageous, and they were confident, which was weird. It seemed these nobodies had found some kind of new source of identity, not rooted in relative status, not rooted in education or achievement or performance or religiosity. Not only were they not intimidated or embarrassed by those above them socially, but they didn't feel or act superior to those below them socially, like the poor lame man in the temple who they loved and took care of. So how is that possible? Well, it's possible because John and Peter's self-worth and value and identity was now humbly rooted in the grace of God. And God's grace changes things. It changes us. It, it changes how we see ourselves, it changes how we see others, it changes, you know, where we find our self-worth and our value. Where do you find yours? So what was the outcome of the confrontation? Well, the text says that since they, the religious leaders could see the man who was healed standing right there next to John and Peter, there's really nothing they could say, nothing they could do. So they ordered Peter and John to be taken out and they conferred together and they said, okay, what are we gonna do with these guys? You know, everyone living in Jerusalem knows they performed this notable sign and we can't deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. They couldn't even say it. So they bring John and Peter back in and they commanded them not to speak or teach in the name of of this Jesus person. And Peter and John replied and they say, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard and know to be true. And then after they were threatened a few more times, they were finally released. Now, there are a lot of different things we could learn from the t- this text. There's a lot of different ways we could look at it. Uh, but for me, uh, for me, recognizing how the pluralistic society in which the early Christians lived was not unlike our own, that seems like a pretty big and significant deal. And it helps give, give me, I think it helps give all of us some practical insight on how we in the church can uh, not simply survive, but thrive in our own cultural context. How do we do it? We commit ourselves to respectfully teach the truth about Jesus and live with compassion and generosity and humility before all people, indiscriminately serving those above us and those below us, ultimately finding our identity and our self-worth and our confidence and our courage in the grace of God alone. Do that. And we as Jesus followers still may not be popular among among some of the cultural elites, but we will find favor with most of the people around us who we love in Jesus' name. Let's pray. Father, so oftentimes we look at history and we just, we think, oh, how things have changed. Which on one level is very true. And yet the closer we look, the more we realize that the more things change, the more they remain the same. And even as we look at the first century world in which your church was born, we see it very similar to our own, a pluralistic society in which people believed all kinds of things, a society which challenged the truth claim of Jesus and yet propagated truth claims of its own. I pray, Lord, that as we see that more, as we understand that more, that we would, we would get some insight on how to live in our own cultural context and how we would, um, that we would go forward um, with, with respect to other opinions and beliefs but, but, but not be ashamed of the claims of Jesus and not be intimidated to accept the claims of others. I pray that you'd help us as your people to stop measuring ourselves against one another, which never really an- ends well. Because there's always someone more beautiful, more strong, more smart. And there's always those that we feel are inferior to us. And, um, but I pray that as we, as we know and experience and embrace your grace, that we would recognize that we are all on equal footing. We're no better than anyone else. We're no worse than anyone else. That your grace is enough for us and for all people. We're all broken. And when we understand that, when we experience it, Lord, it just frees us to be able to, with great humility, love people, those above us, those below us. People... Who are like us, those who are different, the rich, the poor, the old, the young, doesn't matter. We can indiscriminately love and serve other people. And love and compassion, truth and compassion, those things are hard to argue with and argue against. And in our culture, I believe that they are the greatest apologetic to the truth of the gospel. And I pray that we as your people would begin to really understand that. And that we would extend grace to our culture, to the people around us. And we would love and we would serve all comers. And uh, in, in that process, see you do great things. Because Jesus came and accomplished not political revolution, but through personal sacrifice, our rescue. And our freedom is because of him. And we worship him this morning and give you thanks for him. In his name we pray, amen. Let's stand, shall we? I wanna uh, thank you all for being with us this morning. You know, sometimes you, people will say to me things like, you know, this whole Jesus thing, you gotta believe in Jesus. And yeah, I believe, people say, I believe that all good people go to heaven. And my response to that is, well, what about us bad people? You know, you talk about exclusivity. I mean, that excludes me. You know, the, the point is the people in our culture don't really think about what they believe and why they believe it. And I think it's our responsibility as Christians, as the, as the church, not just to challenge them in that respectfully, but to also live our lives in a way that it, it, it proves something to them. It shows them what the love of God is like and what the grace of God is like because to say all good people go to heaven is that's messed up man because that leaves most of us out all of us out that's what religion says you got to be good enough and it's just so discouraging and depleting and and but uh, Christianity says no it's not about your goodness it's about what Jesus has done for you it's about the grace of God embrace it embrace him and find life and that's what it means to be a Christian if you have questions about that, some of our prayer team folks will be down here following this service. You can come and talk with them, and they'll be glad to talk to you more about it, okay? But thanks for coming this morning. I hope you can come back next week. We're going to take a look at what happens next. John and Peter are released. It's fascinating to see what they do immediately afterwards. So come back. We'll take a look at it together, okay? In the meantime, have a great week. Let me pray for you. Now, Lord, I pray that as we go out into the day, may we go with great sense of celebration and, and humility, knowing that it's because of your grace that we stand here today. It's because of your grace that um, we, we we know we're forgiven and that we have life. And uh, and I ask that we would live in such a way in our culture, among our friends, our family, the people we know, we would live in such a way that your grace becomes revealed to them and they see Jesus and uh, and they too would believe. and So may your hand of grace and peace and strength and power rest on your church today, ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next week.